On today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift, we're going to take a closer look at a seldom understood activity in implementation of the Higher Education Act, negotiated rulemaking. We will answer some of the most common questions. What is it? When and why does it happen? How can you get involved? But most importantly, why does it matter to financial aid administrators and their colleges? Before we jump in, though, a short announcement about Shift 22, the best education conference focused on student financial success. Current plans are for the conference to be in person in Tempe, Arizona, March 28th to 30th. This year is all about the student experience and how reducing financial friction improves that student experience, ultimately increasing enrollment and retention of a diversified student class. Early registration and the call for proposals are both open and available at shifthighered.com. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift, an episode that I think will prove to be the wonkiest of wonkiest episodes to date as we talk and dive into the idea of negotiated rulemaking. Today, we have Daniel Barkowitz, Vice President of Financial Aid and Veterans Affairs at Valencia College, back with us for the second time. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much, Amy. It's a thrill to be here, and uh, I I appreciate being referred to as a wonk, so I look forward (laughs) to that. Well, I feel like Negreg is wonky, right? It's, I mean, it's not even just the people. Um, And so, you know, we're, we're here today because negotiated rulemaking is just wrapping up for the fall. And Daniel, you've had an opportunity to take part in negotiated rulemaking for the first time, I think, which is kind of exciting, a little scary. Are those, are those good emotions to tie are, to the experience? Yes, I, I would agree. Exciting and scary um, <laughs> and uh, overwhelming and fantastic. Uh, uh, so all of that. Yes, it's been wonderful. Perfect. I love, I love those emotional ties to, you know, regulations and financial aid. I think our students can actually relate a lot to you. Uh, for those who are new to the industry, maybe have forgotten a little bit about high school civics. Let's talk about what is negotiated rulemaking? Because I will be the first to admit, I've never fully understood the NAGRAG process, and I don't think I'm alone. So what is negotiated rulemaking? So I'm, I'm going to sing, I'm just a bill, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on, no, I won't sing that. Um, but it, the, capital, uh, the, 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 the idea, I guess, is that Schoolhouse Rock got it not fully complete. So the idea of making a law is only really step one in the process, right? So, so you know, someone has a great idea, they make a law, like the Higher Education Act, and you have statute, and statute is the law. But then you have all the regulations. So if you will, the regulations are the rules, right? So, you know, in the financial aid office, when we refer to how we do what we do, we're also we're often referring to the regulations, the rules, not so much the law. Right. And so the challenge is those rules need to be negotiated. There's actually a, a provision in the Higher Education Act that requires 
that rules for Title IV aid programs have to go through a negotiated process. This is different than a lot of other agencies. So the Department of Energy, for example, might choose to do negotiation, but they don't have to. The Department of Education, unless there's an urgent need um, or, you know, or putting this through negotiation would slow things down to the point that it's not, it's not reasonable or possible, according to the secretary, but otherwise they have to go through negotiation to reach consensus on rules. So this process is mandated and it's, you know, it's an important process because it gets, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but it gets everyone at the table who cares about the issues to look cooperatively and together at prospective rules to make decisions about what should or shouldn't be in those rules. So two things I want to mention. One, I love that your example here in the education space used the other notorious DOE, because I know it is such a pet peeve of people when when people abbreviate the Department of Education as the DOE. So I love that you use the Department of Energy. If I heard you correctly, and I'm going to take a break here so we can uh, cut this out if I'm completely wrong. If I heard you correctly, Congress creates the law. Negotiated rulemaking creates the regulations. Exactly right. Congress does the statute, right? And, and the rules, the regulations are, are authored by the Department of Education in cooperation with a public process that, that involves this negotiated rulemaking part. It's only one part. And, you know, maybe we should talk about sort of how it fits in the whole process. Um, yeah. And I'm happy to happy to walk you through that next, if that would be helpful. That'd be great. Um, and I'm going to stop here for a second. Just note, you're getting dog sounds in the background. Are you comfortable with that? Do you want me to make mention of that? We're fine. Okay. So, so let me let me talk a little bit about sort of how negotiated rulemaking then fits into the whole process, right? This, this process began with the department seeking public comment and having a number of, of open forums where any individual could sign up, public uh, member of the public from an institution, a student, a borrower, a, you know, um, just an interested party, think tank, whatever, and offer a topic that they wanted to see addressed. So they did these public comments, calls for public comments around the country. Typically they're done in person. This time they actually were mostly virtual because of the pandemic. So from that um, list of topics that were raised, the department created a list of things that they wanted to address. And you know, for example, one of them was relatively new as a new legislative piece, and that was Pell Grants for prison education programs. That didn't necessarily come up in conversations around the country, but it was important enough that it had to be sort of on the docket this time. So once they have a set of published um, uh, topics, they then sought out negotiators. And what they do is they look for folks who you know, might have interest in, and we'll, we'll talk about the nomination process, but folks who might have interest and, and standing on each of these individual items. So, you know, as a, I, I'm serving as a financial aid administrator representative, but they're also two-year college representatives. They're four-year college representatives, public, private, for-profit. There's um, representatives from state um, higher education offices, from accrediting agencies, from um, uh, uh, organizations that support borrowers, from dependent students, so independent students. There are lots of 
different kinds of organizations at the table, and of course the departments at the table. So we'll go through these this process, and if we if we achieve consensus, and we can talk about what that means, but if we achieve consensus on an issue, then the department has to use the language we agree on when they go out with a notice of proposed rulemaking. If we don't achieve a consensus, then the department can publish whatever it wants to. Hopefully it uses our guidance. But regardless, the next stage is the department publishes their notice of proposed rulemaking. Members of the public can give feedback to that. The department publishes their final regulations and those go into effect. So the work we're doing right now will have to be published by November of 2022 for it to go into impact or effect by July of 2023. So, you know, we're actually, we're working on things right now that won't have impact until the 23-24 academic year, which is both mind-boggling and um, a little, you know, a little scary, but also really important because, you know, the things we're trying to impact have delays built in. Yeah. And, and I mean, right now we're, we're taking up, not we, you guys are taking up topics that are really weighty. Um, and I think that people would prefer to see faster action on when it, when it comes to loan repayment issues, even the, the second chance Pell program. Um, but it, the process is cumbersome and slow. I guess. <laughs> it is, and it's, and I would say it's also thorough and careful. So, you know, the other side of cumbersome and, th- and slow is mm-hmm. the carefulness and, you know, the reality that once these are published, it's very hard to change regulations. So you want to, yes. you want to, you know, you want to do them properly the first time, because otherwise you have to go through another negotiation process to adjust them. And in fact, some of the things we're covering this time are topics that have been covered before and are back for another round of negotiation um, because of, you know, because of that. I'll give an example. It's not for this round, but there's, there'll be another negotiation in January, February, March, and gainful employment's back on the docket again for that round. Here's, you know, GE is like a boomerang that just uh, doesn't, it does not, boomerang isn't even the right word. It's, so I'm going to age myself. Did you ever play tetherball when you were younger? Yes. Yeah. And like you play against someone who's really good and they slam the ball and it just whips around the pole forever. And you're like, I'm done. Yep. <laughs> GE, yep. That's the way G feels. It just keeps coming back. <laughs> it does. It does. And frankly, you know, again, this is an example of what happens in the negotiation. We wouldn't want, I don't think anyone would want any particular administration just be able to push a button and have the GE mm-hmm. rules change overnight. You want that process to be careful and deliberate. Absolutely. So that's a benefit of the, of the negotiation. But remember, the department can early implement, once it gets to final rules, can early implement, um, unless specifically prohibited from that at any point. So if there's something really advantageous, um, they'll do it early. Uh, you know, but, but again, that's an option the department has as well. So let's talk a little bit. So I think we hopefully listeners have a slightly better understanding of what negotiated rulemaking is, where it slots into the development process between creating a law, creating regulation and getting implemented in the field. Um, So let's talk a little bit about how this opportunity kind of came to you 
and what what the process of actually making it to the negotiating table looked like. So how how did you decide to actually how and why did you decide to participate? So I've I've sort of watched with interest negotiated rulemaking before. I've never been at the table. I've never logged on every day. And frankly, I don't think there was a possibility. This is the first time it's been virtual. So if you wanted to observe it before, you had to travel to DC. Um, But when I saw that this round was going to be offered and I saw that it was really focused on student loans and affordability, my background, as we talked about in the last podcast that I was on, I have a student lending background and servicing background as well as a financial aid background. And I thought, you know, I could really bring something to this. Um, and so, you know, I contacted or was contacted by a number of different agencies um, to put a, a nomination in. And the way this works is you have to be nominated to be a negotiated rulemaker um, or a, a non-federal negotiator. You can certainly nominate yourself, but there's a formal nomination program and process. And so the advice I received was you're more likely to be selected if you're nominated by multiple organizations in multiple spots. So um, I had nominations from NASFA. I had a nomination from um, the uh, Association of Community College Trustees. I had a nomination from my own institution. And I had a nomination from FLIP National. So I know you had Chris uh, Sinclair on a previous um, podcast. So those four nominations went in, each of them nominating me for different spots potentially, um, so that the department could figure out where they needed or wanted me to be slotted. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, where I was slotted was as a primary negotiator for financial aid administrators. Each seat at the table has a primary and an alternate. Now, the reason for that is, you know, you're making a big time commitment. This is a three week, no, not directly like all at once, but a three-week time commitment spread over three months. And you need to be able to commit to that. But it's also important to have an alternate who can support you if you need to back away um, or if they have a particular interest in a topic, they can step forward. So it's really a partnership. And my alternate is Alyssa Dobson from Slippery Rock University. She's done a great job. She and I, I think, working in partnership on covering these issues. So you're able to actually... um kind of tap in or sub in the um the alternate in in the in the sessions like right there in the middle of a conversation if you wanted to absolutely so so when it's in person and and up to this point they've all been done in person this is the first one virtually you would literally sit at a table so they refer to it as being at the table or being away from the table so you would sit with the primary at the table and the alternate behind you sort of able to whisper in your ear And in person, you would literally stand up and switch your seats. So the primary would sit at the table or would sit in behind and the alternate would sit at the table. In a virtual mode, we do that by turning the camera on and off. But same idea so that you can switch at a moment's notice if the alternate wants to raise a point or has a question or, you know, this or, or, you know, if I have to step away because an important call is coming through, um, you can you can, you know, make that arrangement together. I I just love I love what I think would create a sense of ease and knowing that I had a partner to, to actually approach this with and someone who could provide different perspective, maybe fill in different gaps where, where I might have them. So I, I love that, that idea of the active alternate, you know, being able to kind of sub in really quick. It's like tag team wrestling. 
Right. <laughs> the other thing that's, that's difficult is because I'm representing all financial aid administrators for all sectors, trying to get feedback from financial aid administrators about what they care about. Yeah. So, you know, I've been using different mechanisms, whether that's Twitter or we have a Slack conversation going with folks who are certified financial aid administrators who hold that designation. Um, we're looking at, you know, we have a, a channel called Negreg Watchers. So I'm trying to find different ways and I'm open to feedback as people, you know, I have been, as people have been looking at issues, um, you know, it's really important for them to feel like their voice is represented at the table. And I know we'll talk a little later about how to get your voice at the table, but that's one is to, you know, share with your designated representative, whether that's me, you know, as a financial aid administrator or whether it's someone from two-year college for your public, for your private nonprofit, for-profit institutions, share your perspective so that that your interests are fully represented. Well, let's talk about that now, because I think, you know, you've already talked a little bit about how large kind of the, the time commitment is, and it feels like negotiators probably need to have a senior level of expertise with, within a certain area. Uh, so if if we have people who are listening that are looking to build up to becoming like the perfect negotiator, how do how should they start that process? And do you think it's important that we have more people striving to be in a position to to be a negotiator? So let me answer the second question first. Absolutely, it's important we have more people striving. Um, I would also say, I don't want to set up a false expectation either. I think it's important to allow yourself to appear stupid. Um, I do that all the time. So, you know, there is no way anyone ever is going to know everything there is to know about financial aid. It's just absolutely impossible. What, what I pride myself on is my ability to find it, not necessarily to know it, but to find it quickly. And so that really is what I think, you know, you need to begin to practice is how do you find the citation? How do you find the regulation? How do you quickly synthesize and understand what you're seeing in print? That's a skill that I've developed over time. Um, and you know, my office knows they'll try to solve a problem or actually my peers do too. And when they can't remember what it was or where it is, they'll reach me and say, where is that? And I'll find it for them, right? It's not that I necessarily have it locked in a corner of my brain. Yeah. It's that I know how to how to search and find the resource. So part of that, right, is you need to gain comfort with reading the handbook, with reading dear colleague letters. With you know, I, I know many of us are so consumed with our day to day work that we think, when do I have time to do the reading? That is, you know, the new rules, the new regs, the proposals. But I would make the argument that that is also the work. The work is, you know, if, if you're not investing in yourself to educate yourself about what's coming, you're going to be behind when it comes. And so, yeah. you know, part of every office, every office needs someone or someones whose role is to do that, to actually, you know, be the person, whether that's a compliance person or a director or an assistant director, but someone whose responsibility is, it is to keep up to date with what's being proposed and what's changing. Um, that's perfect preparation to be part of this process. And then finally, I'd say, you know, I look at my peers around the table. I, I have such respect for the, the folks representing dependent students or independent students or student borrowers. This is all brand new to them, right? And so I can't even imagine what it's like 
to come into this table and have no, you know, no background in Title IV aid, and they're doing an amazing job. So, you know, theirs tells the story that you don't have to be a subject matter expert necessarily either to have something to contribute. Um, really depends on where your voice is coming from. And what are different things that people can do beyond negotiating to, I, you've mentioned a couple of them, I think already, but just, just to be clear with listeners, like what are ways that people can get their voice, opinion, and views into the regulatory process? So first is look for that open call for public testimony, you know, early on, because every time there will be a start of, you know, public forums. Then every day for the last half hour of the day, we take public comment during the negotiated rulemaking process. So there are three-minute spots where we take 10 commenters who actually go through and provide public comment during that time frame on any topic they want and sign up occurs daily. So, you know, so you, you can sign up and say, I want to make a public comment this afternoon. And, you know, you'll have a chance to have your voice added to the record. And then finally, you know, don't be afraid. And I think again, often, sometimes we are, but don't be afraid to when the notice of, of proposed rulemaking is set to actually offer feedback and questions and comments based on what's out there, um, you know, that allows you to have a chance to have your voice inserted into the process as well. Is there any, from, from your experience, um, because I know we're, you know, a lot of us are representatives of our institution or the organization that we, that we work in. So in your experience, when you've provided public comment or, or response, if you have in the past, have you had to clear that with your institution before you were able to take part in those activities? So that's really important. I'm glad you asked that question, Amy. It depends on the institution. I've had some institutions that have said to me, I absolutely want to hear everything you're saying before you say it. And I've had other institutions that say, I don't really care. Um, but if, you're, if you think you're getting into trouble or you're saying something controversial, please give me a heads up. So it really depends institution by institution. I will say for this process, I sought out before I was interested, before I put forward my interest, I sought out the opinion of our advocacy person and our uh, advocacy slash governmental affairs person and our president. And I said, I really wanna do this, but I wanna make sure that you all are in support of this and you understand what it is that, you know, A, we will gain by having our voice at the table um, but B, what are the risks and possibilities here? Um, and you know, I, and I don't think there are significant risks, but there are some, right? So it's important. It's important the institution understand that and be prepared to accept that. And so, you know, it was from my perspective, full disclosure upfront is always much more helpful. And then, as people are thinking about kind of how to track these these notices that come out, the request for public comment is what's the best way to track those? Is it IFAB? Is it a federal register notice? Like what's kind of the, what's kind of your tip or trick for, for keeping an eye on and a pulse on this stuff? So I'll be honest, I rely on NASPA's Today's News. I mean, that for me, that um, daily news update, uh, which I plug into and read carefully every morning with my cup of coffee is the way that I get most of my 
departmental news, most of my industry news. And, you know, and I, I, that is the first thing I turn to every morning because usually it will encapsulate the headlines. It'll give me a sense of what the department's saying. I'm also subscribed to, you know, to what was IFAP for updates, but now is the Knowledge Center. Um, so I'm subscribed for updates there as well. But my go-to resource is is today's news. And and to your point, I, I have both of those. I also get notifications directly from the Federal Register, which is pretty easy to sign up and to limit your, your notification selection to a pretty narrow little chunk that you're looking for. That's um, great. Yeah, I'll add that. <laughs> so, all right. We now know what negotiated rulemaking is. We know how it slots in. We know how to get involved. Um, let's talk all of the dirt about the most recent sessions. So what lessons did you really learn about the process um, as being part of this process and being a negotiator? I think it's interesting, right? Like you kind of got into the sausage factory. So like what What'd you learn? So I will say, you know, what I find fascinating about this process, and again, I wasn't a part of earlier ones, but I will say this particular negotiated rulemaking process has been very student-centered, very student-focused. And that means, right, having more representatives that are students or, uh, or student representing than ever before. It also means reminding us and centering our in our processes on students, on historically disadvantaged students, on low-income students. Um, there's been a lot of focus on, on for example, borrower defense, um, income-driven repayment plans, public service loan forgiveness, closed school discharge, some of the topics that are really focused on making sure that we take care of populations who have been not taken care of in the past. Yeah. And so, you know, that to me, that's an important lesson that the department sets the priorities they want to accomplish. And so it speaks volumes to me about where the department's priorities are right now in terms of what they hope to achieve. So do you, with, with that increased focus on the student participants and representation, just out of curiosity, do you think it has increased the number of times you guys were able to come to consensus or decreased? Because if I heard you correctly, right, they've ta- they're taking consensus at the issue, not at the entire negotiation, which they have the option to do, right? But, it, but if they're taking it at the issue level, if they get consensus, then they're kind of obligated to, to take what you guys have said into, into the implementation. Whereas if there isn't consensus, it's more of just a guidepost. And so here, here's another interesting piece about that. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to the answer to your question, but just for your, for your listeners who may not know, um, the idea of consensus is that any single individual at the table has veto power. So that's, it's not a majority rules, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, 10 people, nine say yes, one says, says no. So therefore the answer is yes. When we take a vote, there are three options. You vote as an individual, I vote yes, or yes with reservations. So I have reservations about what I'm seeing, but I can live with it. Or I vote no. If any member, any seat votes no, consensus fails. 
So there is high pressure, right, um, on all of us to try to reach consensus because if we don't, the department goes off and writes whatever they want to write and they get to set the rules. If we all agree, the department is bound by what we've agreed to. Now, you know, they can make minor tweaks based on later public comment, but, but they're basically bound to what we've agreed to. So to get back to the answer to your question, I actually think more students at the table have generated better discussion and more focused discussion on student needs and student um, uh, desires and student service. I don't think there's been a sacrifice about consensus, though, because that one single voice could have you know, log jam consensus before. Now, instead of one student voice, there are three or four student voices. Um, I, I, I think it's just a, a matter of elevating the student voice and and what you know what they continually remind us of, which is the equity issues, the you know the the reason we're doing this is really to try to remedy um, past situations uh, that haven't haven't really served our students and our borrowers well. Oh, I think that's I think that's great because I I could see people being a little bit concerned that bringing those student voices in. Um, potentially contextually them having difficulty um, and being able to continue to reach consensus. So what, now I know you're wrapping up this week. Um, what do you view so far as the biggest win to come out of this first set of, of NEGREG for, for students, for the industry, for you personally? Like what's the one thing where you're like, yeah, that goes on my LinkedIn profile. So this is such a small issue when you think about it, but such a big issue when you really think about it. Um, we've come to consensus on interest capitalization, which I know sounds like such a such a no-brainer issue, right? Like, boy, interest capitalization, that's exciting. But what it means is that students will see less interest added to the principal of their loan and less often their loan balance is growing. That's a major win for lots of students who are coming into and out of deferments and forbearances and other programs. That's one, right? Um, you know, as you, as you said, when, when we're doing this recording, we're still in the process of the final week. So there are others that I can see movement on where we haven't quite taken the final consensus vote on, but even the movement on public service loan forgiveness on the income-driven repayment plans, um, you know, on some of the other areas, uh, I think are very, very positive. I hope we'll get to consensus, but even if we don't, what we've left the department with is a blueprint for best practice. So even if we don't finally win consensus, I think the win here is that we've moved the conversation from zero, maybe our goal was 100, and now we're at 75. I'd much rather be at 75 than at zero. Yeah, I totally agree. We have to take our wins incrementally where we can. Um, so one last one before I just open it up and say, what else do you want to tell people that we didn't talk about? Uh, if there was one thing about negotiated rulemaking that you could change, what would it be? So I think this year I would say I'd love to be in person. So I get and understand the reason why we're doing it virtually. So let me back up and say, if, if we were doing it in person, you know, my institution would have to cover my travel cost. You know, I'd have a flight, I'd have a hotel, 
I'd have meals, you know, I'd have to cover that or my institution would. So doing it virtually means I can sit here, you know, in my home office and connect by Zoom. Um, but what I lose out of that is I lose the opportunity to really build connections with the other negotiators. Um, what you can call for as an example in the negotiations, you can call for a caucus and bring out a set of negotiators to have a private conversation that's not on the record and then come back to the table. We're still doing that in breakout rooms, but you know those sort of casual lunch conversations or breakfast conversations or you know a drink at the bar after the day is done, mm-hmm. none of that is happening. And it, it I think, has provided a, a longer process because we can't move to those conversations informally. Everything has to be done in a formal setting. So I, I'm, I'm balanced on this. I get and understand the reason to do it virtually. And if I could do it any other way, I would prefer to be in person together if we could, because I think there is some, some lost value in not being together. You know, no one's taught me the secret negotiator handshake, which I am waiting for. I, I'm only half kidding, right? So, you know, when I when I see negotiators now at another conference later, you know, I'll be able to say, hey, we were on Zoom together for three weeks, um, but we, we have never met in person. Um, you know, that's a very different understanding than, hey, we spent three weeks sitting next to each other at a table. We had breakfast together and lunch together and coffee together and, you know, and, and a, and a, drink after work and all of that. And, you know, it's just a, a very different set of camaraderie and, and expectations. So I can, I can understand that as an active participant or a negotiator being, being a drawback for you. I will say personally, from an observer standpoint, there is, has been no better actual window into the negotiated rulemaking process and the conversations than to have this virtually. Um, I think there have been instances where they've, they've been recorded and telecast before, but it's not nearly as effective um, because we we do lose out on some of those audio items, right? And so this is is by far, as a, as a casual observer of NAGRAG, I prefer the virtual, but I totally hear what you're saying about, about the other benefits of it being in person. So I, I will say, um, you know, I, I am, when I'm at the table, I'm very conscious. Well, no, I'm not. So when I'm at the table. I'm looking at the 15 people who are at the table with me. I forget that there are hundreds or maybe dozens of people watching the live stream. <laughs> I have no idea how many people are actually watching the live stream, but then I'll go to Twitter and I, you know, I'm watching the hashtag Negreg feed and, you know, and, and watching the summary that's being offered. And it's very helpful. And so I will say having the live feed, I really value. So if we could do it in person with a live feed, that would satisfy both needs. Um, but I hear you. So, you know, even if I'm not a negotiator in the future, I plan on having the live feed on because I, I'm learning so much um, just sort of being witness to this, not necessarily speaking, but just being witness to this. And I can imagine that's true. And for my friends who are listening to this, who aren't able to watch the live feed, because it, it is, you know, it's, it's six hours a day. That's a lot yeah. of time, right? Minus an hour for lunch. So really five hours a day. But if you can't do that, just go follow up on the, on the Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of people who are, who are tweeting under hashtag negreg or, um, or hashtag regneg. We could talk about that too, but um, 
regulatory negotiations. Uh, but uh, you know, either one, and you'll find a really good blow-by-blow, uh, play-by-play description of what's happening. Um, and as a negotiator, it's very helpful to go back and be able to see that, yeah. to say, what did I miss? Oh, that's what they said. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, before we wrap up, what else would you like to share with listeners that we didn't already talk about? So this was a very wonky conversation, like you promised, right? So I'm just yes. going to circle back. You know, we got very much in the weeds and we talked about, you know, sort of detailed processes. So, you know, some of your listeners, if you made it this far, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> um, Secondly, you know, you may be thinking, okay, so why should I care? And I just want to get back to the why should I care, right? We're in this to help students. And we help students by following the rules that are set by this process that implement the laws that we care so much about. So, you know, the why should I care is if you want to do it right, and I want to do it right, and I want to do it right for students and for our, you know, for our graduates and our alums, I want to have impact to make sure that this is written the best way possible to allow for the best opportunity for our students and graduates and, and for us, frankly. So, you know, the why should I care? Let's get out of the weeds. You should care or we should care. I should care because this is how we do the work. Um, and we're in this profession to, to help our students achieve their educational dreams. That's what this is all about. This is the, you know, the dream making stuff. And sometimes watching those dreams made can be a bit, um, you know, uh, uh, monotonous or repetitive or boring, but it is the making of dreams that we're doing at the Negreg table. Well, and, and I am going to reinforce and maybe take an even stronger position than you are. We talk about advocacy work and we talk about needing to advocate at the state level, at the federal level with our representatives. I would actually argue even more than advocacy work around new legislation um, with, with our representatives that we need more people putting their voice into public comment and to negotiated rulemaking like, like you're talking about. because. When it actually comes to regulations and implementation and who's going to be responsible for the implementation, we are. That is the place where I think we have, as much as we have like this vacuum on, on policy advocacy, when it comes to regulatory advocacy, I think it is even greater because people don't understand the process, don't understand it's an option. And they're even more afraid because when you when you put in a public comment, like it's part of the public record. It's not like I just went and sat down with, you know, Patty Murray and I said something stupid to her, which would be bad enough. But like <laughs> if I'm going to make a mistake and it's part of the public record. So there's this innate um, fear. And, and lack of understanding. So what I'm hoping we did a little bit today is lift the curtain, um, give people a little bit more understanding about the nitty gritty of negotiated rulemaking, the absolute importance of the process and for our um, participation as financial aid professionals. 
um, and that this will encourage more people maybe to reach out to Daniel and talk to him about getting involved with things like this in the future um, and, and to make sure that their voices are heard. Amen. Amen. Amy. And, and, you know, as, as someone who's done a little bit of advocacy work, I've met with a couple of, of representatives in Congress only once, you know, I, I sat with, and it wasn't with the representative, it was with their staffer. Mm-hmm. Um, here, That's I, who really gets the work done, by the way, is the staffer. That's right. <laughs> but here, I feel like I've had actually much more impact in the three weeks, much more focused impact than I ever could have sitting in an office. Not to say that that's not important. It is important. Yeah. Uh, but th- your, to your point, this advocacy work is so critical um, because it does make a difference. Well, this is amazing. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate you coming back. We're going to have to figure out a plan to have you back in season two when we kick off next year. Thank you. Um, if people are interested in connecting with Daniel or following, we'll make sure all of his contact information is available in the show notes. And I really just want to remind everybody that if you've enjoyed this episode to please follow the higher ed shift on your favorite podcast platform, and even share it with your friends and colleagues on social media, just to keep the conversations going, you can use the hashtag higher ed shift or student financial success. And as always, if you're interested in being a guest, please reach out to me by email or on Twitter at amyglenn15. And I look forward to speaking with you again next time. Thank you.